1 Kings chapter 18, we're looking at how Elijah prayed so that we can be a people of prayer. Elijah was one who prayed for rain, but he also prayed for fire. And I think God is looking for people who know how to do the same today. Let's pray together before we dive in. Father in heaven, we're giving you permission now just to speak to us. Um, Lord, we want this to be more than just a, a, a routine exercise. We want to be humbled before you, really trembling at your word, as Isaiah 66 says. Lord, please speak to us. Because when you speak, there's life that happens. And so we pray that you would sanctify us through your word. We pray that this would be a living word, sharper than any two-edged sword, and that your Holy Spirit would be the one who guides us into all truth. We pray this in Jesus' saving name. Let the family say, Amen. 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 All right, 1 Kings chapter 18. If you're there, say, I found it. Okay. 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to spend a lot of time looking upon this, uh, this story that might be familiar or famous. It's the, the showdown on Mount Carmel. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll kind of study around that, but just kind of some build up to that contest of sorts. 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 1 puts us uh, in reference of time. Last week we looked at chapter 17 where Elijah just stood before King Ahab, told him, hey, there's not going to be dew nor rain at, unless I say so. And God spoke to Elijah, uh, led him to uh, the brook Cherith, where he had also spoken to ravens. He had commanded ravens to provide for Elijah. Elijah eventually moves on to um, an area in Zarephath where there's a widow who also was listening to the word of God. Okay? And Elijah is taking care of, at the widow's house, um, the hospitality, the miraculous provision there is evident in chapter 17. And here in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in what year? The third year. Okay, this is three years after Elijah's first appearance in the courts of King Ahab. Three years of no rain. Three years of of overgrowth of weed, you know, whatever. <laughs> Anyways, three years of, of dry drought. And then God says, go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. The last time Elijah saw Ahab, he told him, hey, there's not going to be doing our rain unless I say so. God is commanding him once again. Elijah is a man who listens to the word of God. He's given this promise. Okay, the promise of rain in the third year. And you can tell that by this time, or you would guess that by this time, there would be a severe drought. And that's what exactly what it says in verse 2. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. And there was a severe famine in Samaria. Strong famine. This was, this was not just a famine. This was a severe famine. Now, it's interesting because the rest of this story here, at least in this first section of chapter 18, Ahab isn't in his court. When Elijah wants to present himself to Ahab, uh, Elijah has to find Ahab somewhere else. Why? Because Ahab and another, uh, you know, uh, another officer or, or worker in the king's court, Obadiah, they've gone on a water hunt. 
They're looking for water. They're looking for a place to find some, some supply for their livestock and animals. So this picture is bad. Even the king himself is digging around. Even the king himself is hunting for H2O. And what you find that this picture of, of severity is not just in terms of physical drought, but there is chaos going all around. In fact, when you read in verse 4, talking a little bit about this Obadiah person who, according to verse 3, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And in verse 4, the Bible says, For so it was while Jezebel, that's Ahab's wife, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. Now, while this might be a short cameo about the, the good works of Obadiah, I want us just to, to get the, the severity of not the drought, but the spiritual chaos that's going on. There is a queen of God's people who has massacred the prophets of God. That's ugly and scary. It's disgusting. And what's going on here is that Jezebel, who's, who's really kind of conspired to dethrone the God of Israel and replace Yahweh with Baal. All right, this is kind of her initiative, and Ahab has followed suit. What's going on is that, that uh, Jezebel has likely blamed the prophets of the Lord for the drought that they're experiencing. For her to massacre them, this, didn't, this wasn't just something that she just did in the night. No, this was something that she somehow cast vision and said, hey, these are the ones to blame. And that's the funny thing about, about sin is that there's a tendency to misplace responsibility. To blame the famine here in this case on the prophets of the Lord rather than her own sins, rather than on the sins of the leadership. In fact, when you get to verse 16 through 18, when, when Elijah actually encounters King Ahab, the Bible says this in verse 16. This is 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? You hear what, what Ahab is doing? hey, you're the guy that made all this happen. You are the reason. You're the troubler of Israel. Really interesting. I, I tell you what, the prophetic parallels to this are, are pretty, pretty obvious. When you look at Revelation's picture of the end time, the trajectory that things are going, God's people, God's remnant, will be blamed for the trouble that comes upon earth. Is that you... O troubler of Israel. In verse 18, the Bible says, And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Ahab is being very straightforward. Hey, look, it's not because of, of, of me, but it's because of unfaithfulness to the will and word of God. That's where all of this is coming from. The Bible continues in verse 19 through 24. Elijah's going to uh, call for a settlement. Hey, let, let's get things straight. Let's set the record straight. God has promised rain, 
But there's something we need to set straight first. Verse 19. Now therefore stand and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Again, she is supplying uh, this, you know, the resources for this kind of idolatry. Verse 20, so Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. They get their Twitter accounts going. They, they send the message through TikTok and everybody gets together. In verse 21, Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? That's a really interesting word. Uh, the word is, is referencing a limping back and forth or a wavering, a hesitancy to choose one side or the other. He's calling them out. How long will you ride the fence? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls. And let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood. But put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Verse 24, then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. That's a good idea. Okay? Do you understand the terms of the contest? Elijah wants to make it crystal clear in front of the eyes of the people that who, who is the true God? And, and you kind of wonder, you know, where did Elijah get this idea? Where was the precedent of all of this in the patriarchs and prophets? You know, like, did, where, did, did God instruct Elijah regarding this as well? You kind of wonder why the contest. Was, was Elijah a little bit just overreaching? I mean, God had already promised, hey, I'm going to send rain. Did Elijah really need to draw up a contest like this? And as I was thinking about this, the, the conclusion that I came to is that yes, he did. Why? Because if rain just fell on its own, as God had promised, then the people who had already been deceived by Jezebel would attribute the blessing to Baal rather than to Yahweh. And remember, the motivation, we just read it, the, the motivation, or maybe you would say the objective for Elijah's contest, is found in that question in verse 21. How long will you falter between two opinions? Right? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. You see, the objective here for Elijah in drawing up this, this, this obvious, very concrete demonstration the object would be to lead God's people to repent. To lead God's people to turn from their divided loyalty, which was the very reason for the drought itself. Right? And so this is really significant to me, that in this promise of rain, before Elijah prays for rain, he prays for fire. I'll say that again. Before Elijah prays for rain, he prays for fire. And what was the goal of the fire? What was the hoped-for end of that fire? It's repentance. It's repentance. It's true loyalty. It's undivided hearts. That's what Elijah is going for. 
And so to put it in other words, before Elijah prays for the blessings of rain, he prays for the gift of repentance. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 has been a theme verse for us during our Thursday night house of prayer. And uh, this is actually in the context of Solomon's dedication of the temple that he had just built, or at least been responsible for building. And God is responding to the prayers of Solomon here. And the promise is, if my people, this is God speaking in response to Solomon's prayers. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You see, God wants to heal the world. God wants to heal our land. God wants to drench the drought, but he does so upon the condition of our seeking after him, our humbling ourselves before him, and our turning from our wicked ways, a.k.a. repentance. And so in verses 25 to 29, how does this contest actually play out? In verse 25, this is 1 Kings again. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 25, the Bible says, Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first. For you are many and call on, your, on the name of your God, but put no fire on it. So they did, right? Elijah kind of taking the gentleman's way. Hey, you guys go first, all right? After you. Verse 26, so they took the bull which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Morning till noon. That's a long time to do anything right? That's a long time to be brushing your teeth. That's a long time to be talking on the phone. That's a long time to be praying a one-line prayer. Oh, Baal, hear us. No voice. No one answered. And so they ramp it up. Did you notice at the end of verse 26? Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. Verse 27, and soon it was noon that Elijah mocked them and said, okay, Okay, so maybe Elijah overreaches just a little bit. <laughs> he's kind of rubbing it in a little bit. He said, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's meditating or he is busy or he is on a journey or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. Verse 28, they, they take his suggestions. Hey, he's right. So they cried aloud and cut themselves as was their custom with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. I tell you what, all the attempts of the prophets of Baal, though very frenzied, was futile. This is an apt description. Verse 29 is so emphatic. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. It was all for nothing, right? And here is where Elijah begins to pray for rain. This is where Elijah kind of, uh, the, the, the camera just zeroes in on what Elijah is up to. And it's in stark contrast 
to the prophets of Baal. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. Right? If you're playing the movie out in your minds, after all this jumping and leaping and lancing themselves, the people are, <laughs> I don't know how large of a mountaintop Mount Carmel was, but the people, they're, they're social distancing at this point. Like, I don't want a part of that. Okay? So that's why Elijah has to say, hey, come close. This is going to be different. That's a big deal. That the Elijahs at the end of time are going to be different. In verse 30, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. This is the first step in praying for fire. He repairs. The word is actually heals. He heals this altar that was broken down. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. What's going on here is before Elijah prays for fire or part of his prayer for fire is to repair this sense of identity that we have been called by God. He's repairing this sense of remembrance that God has given us a covenant, that God has made promises, and we have broken those promises. He's repairing the covenant. He's repairing the altar, a visual reminder of God's unrelenting call upon our lives. It's repairing their sense of identity, repairing their sense of belonging to God, being chosen by God. And in verse 32, he goes another step. Then with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood and said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Now, in this land of severe drought, you know, the only place that I can imagine them getting water, you know, Mount Carmel was relatively near. I don't know. It was still a ways away from the Mediterranean Sea. That's, that's my only guess. That they're getting large water pots, you know, having to kind of trek down, trek back up. Not quite sure how long this took because Elijah does this three times over. He says, get this stuff wet. Get the sacrifice. Soak the sacrifice. Fill the trenches. Why is he doing this? Verse 35, it says, so the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. You know what's going on? Elijah's wanting them to know, to, to see, that there's no trickery involved in what's going on. Elijah is confident that God is going to answer by fire, but he wants the people to know that he isn't doing it. He's not pulling out a ladder. He's not throwing some sparks in. This, if this is going to happen, this is all God. So no trickery, it's all sincere, all God's work. He soaks the sacrifice. And then in verse 36, and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have, what's the next word in your Bible? That you have turned their hearts back to you again. Hmm. This prayer is not just a prayer for fire, literally. 
This prayer is a prayer for hearts to be turned to God. That God would be known, that he would be remembered, that he would grant his people the gift of repentance. And all of this, interestingly enough, is at the time of the evening sacrifice. Did you notice that little time stamp there in the story? In verse, uh, where was that? Verse 36, and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. You know what that is? That's a reference to the temple. You know, again, remember, Ahab's time. They had built a temple to Baal. <laughs> they had built an altar to Baal. True worship of the true God had been long lost and forgotten. Yet Elijah, you know, by, by God's providence, is able to take advantage of this ritual rhythm time that was so ingrained in them that would remind them about the spotless sacrifice that alone can make them acceptable to God. It was at the time of the evening sacrifice. All right, so here is Elijah praying for fire. And we'll get to the miracle. We'll get, don't worry, we'll, we'll get there. But I want us just to quickly summarize, how then does Elijah pray for fire? How then does Elijah pray for repentance? Friends, do you realize that, that repentance is something to pray for? You know, repentance isn't just something that we kind of, you know, say, okay, right now, I guess I'll, I'll repent. No, no, repentance is a gift from God. You understand that? We've talked about this before, but let me just uh, reference this. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. The Bible is talking about Jesus, the crucified but risen Messiah. It says, Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Let's understand something about repentance. It's not something we work up from a frenzy. It's something that God grants to us in answer to prayer. I mean, when was the last time you prayed for repentance? Not just that you prayed a repentant prayer, but that you actually prayed for the gift of repentance, the experience of heart sorrow for sin and turning from it. You know, sometimes we think of repentance as, I guess maybe off, more often than not, we think of repentance as something we express to God but what if it's something we first need to actually receive from God? So this is Elijah praying for fire. Really, he's praying for repentance. And how does he do it? Let's just kind of break it down. First thing. Well, let me say this before he does this. It's not like the prophets of Baal, okay? The way he prays for repentance is completely distinct from the frenzy of the prophets of Baal. It may be fervent, but it is not frenzied. You follow me? Yes or no? Yeah? So it's not something that we just kind of work up. No, no, no. It's a coming near. There's a reverence. And so how does he do this? He seeks first to repair the altar. We've already talked about it. Repairing the sense of God's covenant promises. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God has committed himself to us, and he has called us by a special name. He has given us covenant promises to be faithful to, and we've broken them. And so when we're repairing the altar, this first step in praying for fire is to remember the covenant. Remember that we belong to God. We've let go of him, but he hasn't let go of us. Praise the Lord. Remember that we are bought with a price and that we are not our own. And I think this is in connection to, you know, when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, what was the first line? What was the first phrase of the Lord's prayer? Our Father. The first step in approaching God is to be assured 
of your belonging to God. Did you hear it? <laughs> if you're wondering, hey, how, do I, how do I turn to God? First, rest upon the fact that He is your Father and you're His son and daughter. Not because you've done all that, but because He is all that. <laughs> our Father. He's not just my Father. He's our Father. Anyways, that, that, that phrase is a loaded confession that repairs the altar. Okay. So that's the first step in praying for fire, praying for repentance. Repair your sense of belonging to God because of His faithfulness to His promises. Second thing is to soak the sacrifice. <laughs> soak the sacrifice. Remember, when Elijah was pouring all the water, it was because he wanted to make sure that the people knew there were no illusions here. He wasn't doing this from his own power. So when we're talking about soaking the sacrifice, we're talking about being sincere, removing all pretense, being honest that the fire, that the repentance that we truly need is, is of God, and it's not of ourselves. Soak that sacrifice. Get rid of any sense of self-exalted, uh, uh, you know, concept of, of ourselves. Oh, I'm not that bad, or I'm not as bad as, you know, whatever the case. Be sincere. Be real. Soak the sacrifice. The third thing here that, that Elijah does is he's praying for the heart to turn. So go ahead, turn the heart. In our seeking after repentance, in our seeking for the fire of repentance, let's admit the ways that our heart has turned away from God and acknowledge that we need to turn toward God. And I love the fact I mean, this is, this is exactly what we were talking about on Thursday night in our house of prayer time. To turn from our wicked ways is to, to turn from those things that have hidden God's face from us. Right? And a lot of times, we know exactly what those things are. We know those things because they're overt, they're blatant. But a lot of times, we've rationalized some of those things away to thinking that they're not so bad when in reality, they are hiding God's face from us. So to turn the heart is to, to actually give God the green light to search our hearts. To give God the green light to press upon our conscience with a certain freshness that maybe we haven't allowed in the past. And if you're thinking, man, to, to have our hearts, to have our lives searched, that is that is frightening and terrifying. I tell you what, I love the fact that this step, turning the heart, is after repairing the altar. It's after being assured of God's love for you and I. If, there's, if there is a safe place in the universe to be completely transparent, it is before the God who loves us with an everlasting love, regardless of our track record. We, we can safely pray like David in Psalm 139. Search our hearts and know us. Try our inmost thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There's no safer place in the universe than the grace of God that is promised to us. You and I, we are accepted in the beloved. We can be real with God. Praise the Lord. So we repair the altar, we soak the sacrifice, we turn the heart. One last one. 
We do this at the time of the evening sacrifice. And what, what do we mean by that? I, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm hearing from this is that part of repentance, or maybe the, the, the linchpin for really experiencing the gift of repentance, is when we do so with eyes fully fastened upon the cross of Calvary. This is what I'm talking about. The, the time of the evening sacrifice is the time when Christ himself breathed his last. I don't know when the last time was that you read through one of the, the passion stories of the Gospels. But you look at the, the story of the cross, the story of Calvary, and Jesus breathed his last breath at the time of the evening sacrifice. <laughs> That's exactly the time where there was a great earthquake and I imagine that in the temple there in Jerusalem, right at that time, there was probably a priest ready to slay a lamb. But because of all that took place, the great earthquake and then the tearing of the, of the, uh, the veil between the holy place and the most holy place, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. Because of all of that, I imagine that whatever lamb was prepared that day ran away. Why? Because the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world was hanging between heaven and earth for you and me. Amen. And so when we're praying for fire, yes, you know, repair the altar, soak the sacrifice, turn the heart, but do so with eyes set on the cross of Calvary. Amen. Look to Jesus and to his righteousness. This is, this is really the road to repentance. And on this road... Repentance leads to rain. <laughs> Repentance leads to rain. Now, let, let's, let's read the rest of this Mount Carmel story here. It says, Then the fire of the Lord. This is verse 38. Back to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell All right. and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench Woo. Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Repentance is realized. Yes, fire fell, but repentance was received. And because repentance was realized, now the rain is certain. And I want to finish the rest of this chapter here, starting in verse 41. Then Elijah said to Ahab, because Elijah knows what's up. Elijah remembers the beginning of chapter 18. Hey, the word of the Lord came to me and said that rain is coming. So what does Elijah tell Ahab? Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. Had it rained yet? Yes or no? No. But Elijah, with eyes of faith, knew that revival was coming. Rain was coming because repentance was realized. So verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees. What is Elijah doing in verse 42? He's praying. He's praying. This is really interesting to me. Because Elijah is confident in God's promise to send rain, but he still prays for the rain. Why didn't Elijah go up with Ahab? 
Why didn't Elijah just go on up in a chariot too and, and say, hey, hey, let's go party because we know the rain is coming. God is already going to do this. We can just sit back and wait for it. But Elijah presses in prayer. See, there's a relationship here that I think God wants us to see, that what God promises is what his people ought to pray for. I don't know if this is making sense. What God promises is what we, Elijah's of today, ought to pray for. Has God promised us a new heart and a new spirit? Ezekiel chapter 36. Let's pray for that new heart and new spirit. And not just presume that because God promised it, uh, he'll figure it out in his own time. Let us pray for that. Why? Because we think God can't figure it out? No, because we need to interweave our interests with God's interests. That's the power of praying God's promises. Has God promised that Jesus would come again? Then let's pray for it, right? The end of Revelation. Even so, come Lord Jesus. We know Jesus is going to come. Well, let's pray for that too. Has God promised to send rain, the rain of the Holy Spirit, the rain of the, the, the early rain and the latter rain? Yes, he has promised it. Well, let's pray for it. Zachari I think it's Zechariah chapter 10, verse 1. Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. God has already promised to send us the Holy Spirit in abundant measure. But friends, we as a people have the privilege of praying those promises. Why? Because God can't figure it out? Because God forgot? No. Because we as a people, through prayer, interweave our interests with God's. This is really interesting. When you look through this story, the last few verses of, of chapter 18, Elijah is praying, but he's doing this again and again. Verse 43, he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. Elijah's looking for some, some uh, visible semblance that rain is actually on its way. But there's nothing. What does the end of verse 43 say? Uh, so he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And seven times he said, go again. So here it is. He's praying, go, go, go look for clouds. There's nothing. He's praying, go look for clouds. There's nothing. He's praying, go look for clouds. There's nothing. He does this seven times over. Verse 44, then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand, rising out of the sea. So he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot, go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. I mean, just imagine those, you know, when, when there's been drought, uh, we talk about flash floods after, after fire has come through because the, the soil is so parched and dry. I mean, you're, you're imagining Ahab kind of uh, managing his chariot through, through mudslides and things as this heavy rain is pouring. And I love it in verse, what is it, verse 46? Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This is awesome. King Ahab needed an escort. The rain was too heavy. I don't know how many of you were caught in some rain, some, some heavy rain yesterday. But there were some, like the sun was just so that I couldn't see through the windshield and stuff. I needed an escort. This guy, King Ahab, he had a human escort. Elijah was running faster than the chariots by the hand of the Lord. It's an awesome story. And so here it is. 
Elijah praying for rain, not just once, but seven times over. And I don't know if this strikes you, but when Elijah prayed for fire the first time, it came. <laughs> Can you imagine if, if, if Elijah had to do that seven times over, what effect that might have had on, on people? When Elijah prayed for repentance, that prayer was answered immediately. Why not here when praying for rain? Why not here? Elijah needed perseverance in prayer just like you and I did. It's really interesting. There's a devotional book called Conflict and Courage that actually addresses this very question about Elijah's persistence, needed perseverance in prayer. And she's talking about how God loves to bless us. And he says this, or she says this, Ellen White says this in Conflict and Courage. She says, God wants us to have all our interests interwoven with his interests. And then he can safely bless us. That's a really interesting phrase right there. Then he can safely bless us. God does not always answer our prayers the first time we call upon him. Well, why not? For should he do this, we might take it for granted that we have had a right to all the blessings and favors he bestowed upon us. In other words, we might feel like entitled children. Well, just because I want this and just because I've asked for it, it's going to come. Instead of searching our hearts to see if any evil was entertained by us, any sin indulged, we should become careless and fail to realize our dependence upon him and our need of his help. Ooh, hold the phone. So Elijah's perseverance in prayer was actually an exercise for him. During those seven times where his, his head is between his knees, he is actually experiencing a heart search, a time of heart turning, and a time of repentance himself. This was Elijah's fire moment. Which strikes me that Elijah, not just the Elijah of 1 Kings chapter 18, but the Elijahs at the end of time are just as much in need of heart turn as those we're trying to lead. Amen. Amen. You know, we, we often talk about praying for repentance for other people. Oh, Lord, please turn them. <laughs> Friends, we need heart turn too. I'm not talking about heartburn. I'm talking about heart turn. And so how do we experience this? Well, we experience this in times where prayers aren't necessarily answered immediately. We experience this as we pray the promises of God and we do so with perseverance, endurance. Why? So that our will can be brought in line with God's will. I believe the Elijah's God is raising up today. Raising up to prepare the way for Jesus' second advent will be a people who not only live by the word of God, but also pray according to the word of God. And I wonder if we really understand this as Elijah did. I fear that we, uh, that I, I'll just put it in the first person. I, I fear that I, content myself with prayerlessness 
And I wonder if we understand how much fervent prayer truly avails. James chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. I don't have it on the screen, so if you want to turn there, you can go ahead and do it. But in verse 16, particularly the, the very end of it, James says that the prayers, the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. That's right, Donna. If you need your eyes to see that, go ahead. James chapter 5, verse 16. The effective, the effectual, I'm sorry, the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And then in verse 17 and 18, it's actually referring to Elijah's experience. And this verse, we're talking about effective prayer. We're talking about fervent prayer. The word for effective is actually energeo. It's energy, energized prayer. Prayers that are charged with a heavenly current, charged to do a work from heaven and in this light are effective. They are fervent, not frenzied. And these prayers, these effective, fervent prayers that come from a righteous man, and if we're talking about Elijah and knowing his experience of of having to persevere and, and searching his heart, really, we're talking about the effective, fervent prayers of a repentant man, a repentant woman. What do they do according to this promise? They avail much. They're strong. The Greek word there is to be strong, to be in full vigor, to be robust, having strength to overcome. It's a fighting term. It's a combative term. The effective, fervent prayers of a righteous, because they're repentant person, storm the gates of hell. That's what this verse is saying. Oh, that God would teach us to pray. We need not just the blessing of rain, but the blessing of prayer. That's what we need. In fact, uh, just in an article written back in the 1800s, 1896, Ellen White says it in a review in Herald. She says, the greatest blessing that God can give to man is the spirit of earnest prayer. If you're wondering what blessing you can ask for today, ask for this one. Ask for a spirit of earnest prayer. Why? Because all heaven is open before the man or woman of prayer. Amen. Amen. So, two invitations today. That throughout this week, you would pray two bold prayers. Bold prayer number one, pray for rain. (laughs) Pray for rain. And yeah, you know, uh, biblically speaking, the, the overall uh, metaphor of rain in Scripture often refers to the blessing and promise of the Holy Spirit. So pray for the promise of the Holy Spirit. In the immediate context, if we were to apply this, the story of Elijah's experience in the three years of drought, rain applies really to whatever it is that we lack. Whatever drought of something that's vitally necessary, whether for our physical well-being or for our spiritual well-being, whatever drought you may be experiencing, pray for rain. Look for a promise of God's providence and pray for that drought to be quenched. And then to take this story even more seriously is to recognize that sometimes that lack that we're experiencing, sometimes the empty-handedness, sometimes the drought that we have, is directly related to God's attempt to bring our hearts into alignment with His. And so along with praying for rain, or maybe prior to praying for rain, pray for fire. Pray for repentance. 
for true repentance, for true turning of heart to God. And don't just pray the repentant prayer, but to actually pray for the gift of repentance. To be honest with the ways that we in our lives have been faltering or limping, indecisive, fearful even to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Friends, we cannot rightfully plead for the blessings of God without being fully committed to live by the word of God. And so, who's with me? <laughs> Will you pray for rain? Will you pray for fire? Yeah. Amen. And just one last invitation here. Because, you know, this, yeah. this week was a hard week for me and my family. We lost a friend, or we found that a friend actually took her life. And um, I don't want to take any moment for granted. And if you have not received Jesus, let this be a day of salvation for you, please. Receive Jesus today. He wants to give you salvation. He wants this time to be an acceptable time where you can say, yes, I'm giving heaven a reason to rejoice. And so if you just desire to receive Jesus for the first time or to receive him again, would you just stand with me? Would you just stand and declare to heaven, yes, I am receiving Jesus because this is a day of salvation. I'm not taking this moment for granted. I want to say yes to the one who loves me with an everlasting love. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are so patient with us in all of our wanderings and all of our idolatry and of all, all of our fearfulness to live by every word that proceeds from your mouth and all of our faltering and limping back and forth and riding the fence. Lord, we pray for the gift of your mercy and repentance today. Turn our hearts to you. Make us the kind of people who not only pray for the blessings that we're longing for, but for the relationship to be restored with the God of heaven. Oh Lord, I thank you so much that this is a day of salvation. We are saying yes to you. We want to receive Jesus. And when we look to the cross, there is no faltering or limping there. Thank you, Jesus, for not coming down, for breathing your last, for becoming sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in you. We receive this gift today, humbly. And we pray this in Jesus' saving and precious name. Let the family say, amen, amen and amen. You may be seated.